1: off less work, more clean. Terms apply.
2: As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlaz, former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off US versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous US China relationship. Find Face Off
3: so I'm happy to sing the praises of the periodic table, but it's more enjoyable when Tom Lehrer does it.
4: There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium,
3: neptunium, germanium,
4: and iron, and ruthenium, uranium,
3: europium, zirconium, lutetium. Although memorialized in song, you could say that rare earth elements don't get no respect. They're stuck at the bottom of the periodic table with unpronounceable names like praseodymium and gadolinium and They just don't have the chic popularity of oxygen, hydrogen, carbon, and other chart toppers. If you use a cell phone, though, a computer maybe, drive an electric car, or are a passenger in an electric car, well, you depend on rare earth elements. And now, rare earth elements are becoming problematically hard to get. This is Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, and I'm Seth Shostak.
2: I'm Molly Bentley, one barometer of the demand for rare-earth metals. Your car and those of your neighbors are disappearing. In this episode, we'll explain the connection and explore solutions to an environmental paradox. We need rare-earth metals to build cleaner vehicles, but extracting them can be polluting and destructive to habitats. Can we find alternatives? Will a plan to responsibly mine metal from the seafloor deliver? This episode is Testing Your Metal. Do you know what that sound is, Seth?
3: Well, that sounds like a car where the uh, exhaust system has gone bad one way or another.
2: (laughs) That's right. That is the lovely roar of a car without a catalytic converter. And I learned the hard way about the importance of catalytic converters. So we're going to begin this episode with a personal story, although I should say it's not mine alone. It's unfolding on residential streets and driveways across the country. This is how it began. One morning, Seth, about a year ago, returning from a walk with my husband, we noticed that the front tire was flat on our old Ford pickup, and it was the tire facing the street. It's kind of odd that it was flat because it was fine the day before.
3: All right, flat tire. A flat tire that didn't occur when you were driving anywhere. It's just the car sitting there and decided, I think I'll make this tire flat.
2: (laughs) Exactly. So my husband took off the tire, he filled it with air, and then he let it sit to see if he could locate the leak. Then he unlocked the spare tire from beneath the truck, and he put it on. Now, weirdly, Seth, the uh, the tire that he took off was holding air just fine, so it didn't have a leak. We didn't know why it was flat. Um, I just figured some kids probably messed with it for kicks. And I forgot about the incident, uh, but my husband, who is finely tuned to even small anomalous events didn't forget about it. As I would later learn, the mystery of the flat tire kept nagging at him, and this will be relevant later. But it was soon eclipsed by what happened next, because two days later, we woke up and the truck was gone.
3: My goodness. What, what happened to it? I mean, I, I assume nobody else had the key. No,
2: it would be nice if oh. it had been just a neighbor borrowing the car, but no, it was stolen. And I went through a neighbor's webcam video and saw the truck being stolen. Seth, guess how long it took them to steal our truck?
3: Well, I'm told that they can do that very quickly.
2: It took them two minutes to break into the car and steal it.
3: Probably not their first time.
2: (laughs) Probably not their first time. Otherwise, beginner's luck. Anyway, we searched the neighborhood for the truck. No luck. About three weeks later, the police called to say that they found it discarded on the other side of town. And my husband and I were overjoyed until we saw it. Seth, it was a wreck. The tailpipe was dragging.
3: Oh, that's terrible, Molly.
2: It wasn't operable, so we had it towed back to our house, and we donated it to a charity. But before they picked it up, uh, my husband scooched underneath and sawed off that dragging tailpipe so it could leave with some dignity, and that was, that was the end of our truck.
3: That's terrible. You feel so—I mean, it isn't just the, the fact that the, the vehicle's gone— It's that it's something personal, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. We really loved that old truck. But that's not the end of the story, because we learned through all of this the scope of a phenomenon that had been intensifying since the pandemic began. Vehicles being stolen or vandalized. Now, not all the thefts include the vehicles themselves, but they all include the catalytic converters. Do you remember that dragging tailpipe?
3: Yeah. I think I get the picture here.
2: Yes, you do. It had been connected to our truck's catalytic converter, and that's what the thieves were after.
3: Well, thieves are
4: at it like never before, stealing an essential piece of your car. Catalytic converters help cut pollution from our cars, trucks, and SUVs.
0: These things are also worth a lot of money, and in Sacramento County, thefts are soaring. They're up 1,500% in recent years.
2: Thieves have not only targeted Sacramento County, California or Oakland where I live, there has been a national surge in catalytic converter thefts in the past few years. Wow. What
3: do you what do you think that is the motivation of these thieves? Obviously, I doubt that they're doing this because they want to clean up the exhaust from their own cars. Right.
2: They're not after the catalytic converters per se, they're after the rare earth metals that are contained inside them. Uh-huh. Catalytic converters were first used in vehicles in the 1970s when stricter emission standards went into law because they they filter pollutants from car exhaust.
4: I'm Paul Danauer, professor of chemical engineering and material science at the University of Minnesota. Well, the catalytic converter exists because of the way the engine operates. When the engine burns fuel, it has an exhaust. And within that exhaust are all sorts of things we don't want in the air. So the catalytic converter exists to clean those up.
3: You know, you want to get rid of yes, carbon monoxide, which is a poisonous gas, but they also get rid of these uh, nitrous oxide compounds that are also very harmful, and finally they get rid of these uh, uh hydrocarbons, which are essentially soot, you know, that uh Pollute the air.
2: Right, and it's the rare earth metals inside your catalytic converter that turn those harmful gases cooked up by your engine into less harmful ones. What comes out the tailpipe includes water and nitrogen, but a third gas reveals that the system isn't ideal.
4: That's right. The output from a catalytic converter, if it works perfectly, is carbon dioxide, which we don't like to have into the atmosphere, of course, but it's better than carbon monoxide or unburned gasoline or the NOx components, the nitrogen oxides, which can go up into the atmosphere and form acid rain.
3: Well, Molly, do you know what the rare earth elements that are in your catalytic converter, or were in your catalytic converter, do you know what they were?
2: Yes, ouch, (laughs) were in my catalytic converter. Yes, I do now. Uh, Three of them, palladium, plutonium, and rhodium.
3: You sure about plutonium?
2: I... (laughs) No, not plutonium. I am not sure about that. I, I was
3: going to say, you have an atomic powered truck. Yes, yes. Somebody yes. does. It was
2: amazing. Oh. It could travel across country in, you know, half a day. No, uh, I'm sorry, palladium, platinum, and rhodium.
4: So these metals get used uh, throughout the world in all sorts of applications, but the big application is the catalytic converter within a car. They have unique properties as metals that make them useful for all sorts of different types of chemistry. It's just that we have so many automobiles and so much exhaust to clean up that we see so much of these precious metals in the catalytic converter.
2: Well, well, Seth, what makes palladium, rhodium, and platinum, not plutonium, rare earth metals?
3: Yeah, well, there are about what, 15 or 17 rare earth metals, or you could just call them rare earth elements, right? But it turns out they're all metals. And they're called that not because they're particularly rare. They're not so rare. I mean, copper is rarer than most of these elements. But copper, you can find big deposits of copper, you know, in places like, I don't know, uh, Chile, for example. And you can mine it on a large scale because there's a lot of copper in the ground here. But these elements, these rare earth elements... They're all very similar in their chemical properties. And that means that if you find a deposit of, you know, europium, for example, which is one of them, uh, you're going to also find cerium and prosodymium and, you know, the other rare earth metals are going to be in there too. So that makes it very hard to extract what you
2: want usually all these three rare earth metals palladium platinum and rhodium are in that converter serving as catalysts catalysts are materials that speed up chemical reactions but they don't change chemically themselves
4: and what makes these particular metals so interesting are their surface properties so every material every element of course if it's a particle has a surface to it and That's where chemistry can happen. We think about chemistry happening all sorts of places, like in a beaker or a dish. It can happen in the air, like a, like a flame, but it can also happen on a surface. And when it happens on a surface, we call that catalysis. It just turns out that these particular metals have amazing catalytic properties for a lot of the hydrocarbons and oxygen chemistry that are important for fuels.
2: Let's say more about the sort of chemical combinations or recombinations that are happening inside of a catalytic converter. Now, can you describe that and then describe when these gases blow through that, what happens next?
4: Yeah, so if you open up a catalytic converter, and I really recommend you do not, there's so many ways you can get hurt doing it, so please don't do that, but I'll tell you what's in it. If you open it up, our goal is to get the gas exhaust coming out of your engine to interact with as much metal surface area as possible. So what we do instead of making the entire catalytic converter out of metal, which would be very expensive, we use a low cost, uh, it looks like a honeycomb material. It's got lots of uh, passages and pores in it. Now on top of that, we can put little nanoparticles of the metal, maybe one place you have a little particle of platinum, one place you have a little particle of rhodium. Well, the atoms on those, they have a lot of energy because it's high temperature. And the molecules that stick to them, the exhaust gases, also make them more mobile. Then they can move around. The atoms can slip across the surface to another particle, and then that
3: particle can grow. Okay, so what Paul's saying here is that the surfaces of catalysts are kind of dance floors where atoms can meet. In a converter, molecules of your car's exhaust gases stick to the surface of these rare earth metals, For example, if carbon monoxide gas lands on the metal, it gets pulled apart into separate carbon and oxygen atoms. That happens because the rare earth metal just happens to have the right arrangement of electrons to be able to grab them and pull them apart. But because the converter is hot, and it is within two or three minutes of you pushing the start button on your car, the pulled apart atoms start to dance around furiously, and they encounter other atoms on that surface and hook up. So what exits your tailpipe is water and carbon dioxide, mostly. The toxic nitrogen oxides produced by your engine are broken up into nitrogen and oxygen, whose atoms recombine to form less noxious gases.
2: Since their adoption in the 1970s, catalytic converters have led to a significant drop in carbon monoxide and nitrous oxide emissions. These days, emission regulations have become stricter and automobile demand is up, setting off a need for more rare earth metals. Since we can't increase the supply easily, that has driven up the cost of rare earth metals, which makes them an ideal target for thieves. Okay,
3: well, but this is kind of a pedestrian question. I apologize for that, but you know, it always interests me. how do they get the catalytic converters off?
2: It's it's not a pedestrian question, although a pedestrian might be able to watch them taking off the catalytic converters um, because it happens very quickly. Uh, remember that my husband used a saw to cut off that dragging tailpipe?
3: Yeah, hacksaw,
2: yeah. Yeah, hacksaw. Well, thieves can cut the catalytic converter even quicker with a special battery-powered saw that is used for hard-to-reach cuts. <sighs> Today, my neighbor was using one. That's an electric saw. What what are you using it for?
3: (laughs) Right now, outdoor cutting a tree. But wouldn't when,
2: when that sound,
3: wake up the neighborhood?
2: Well, they do sometimes wake up the neighborhood. That's why the thieves will sometimes steal the car and drive it to a remote location with our truck. Uh, that's what they did. I think crashing the car after a joyride was just a bonus. Uh, but remember, I said it only took two minutes to steal the truck. It only takes a few minutes more to steal a catalytic converter if your car or truck has decent ground clearance thieves can slide under it and saw off the catalytic converter even on a residential street or driveway by the time you hear the saw throw on your bathrobe and rush outside the deed is done
5: just how low bay area catalytic converter thieves are willing to go this one went right under someone's car in traffic
3: i mean does this problem go away along with gas-powered vehicles I mean, when we switch to, you know, either at least hybrids, but then eventually electric cars, this doesn't sound like it's a problem that's going to be relevant in another ten or twenty years.
2: Well, let's let's talk about hybrids, and we'll talk about electric cars later. Um, there are a lot of benefits to driving a hybrid car, but avoiding catalytic converter theft is not one of them. Because of their higher emission standards, hybrid vehicles use more palladium or rhodium which makes them a bigger target for thieves, as our producer Gary Niederhoff learned, also the hard way.
1: So I walk out into our driveway, and I notice under our car, which is a 2005 Prius, a Gen 2 Prius, there's a giant rock wedged under the rear passenger tire. So I decide I'm gonna to have to move the car to get the rock out from under it. And as soon as I start the car, the worst sound I've ever heard starts roaring out of the car, and I immediately turned it off,
3: and a few seconds passed before I realized what had happened. Our catalytic converter had been stolen. So we're talking about small amounts of these three... Uh, rare earth metals in the average catalytic converter, right?
2: Yes, it might be a few grams each of platinum, palladium, and rhodium. So let's say 12 grams altogether. That's about the weight of a AAA battery. And from that, with palladium, for example, currently valued more than gold, thieves can make hundreds or thousands of dollars. But as for how those unscrupulous metal dealers extract precious metals from catalytic converters. Well, here's what Paul said when I asked him how they do it.
4: So uh, I, don't, I don't want to tell people how to do it. It, <laughs> it can be done by a chemical process, just like we put the metals in. Uh, it can be removed by a chemical process. Now, again, this is another process by which if you were to attempt it and didn't know what you're doing, you could really hurt yourself. So I, I, would, I would advise against people even trying to learn how to do it.
2: Okay, we'll leave it there. It's a chemical process. The rest of it is a black box, and so we're not going to give away The Secrets.
3: So it sounds as if catalytic converters offer thieves a very tempting target. They can get them in a matter of minutes. There are rare earth metals in the converters in quantities that are sufficient to tempt the criminal mind.
2: Well, that sums it up, Seth. But there's one more intriguing piece of this story. Remember that we discovered that our truck had a flat tire. This was two days before it was stolen?
3: Yeah, okay.
2: Well, I dismissed it as one of those things. But as I said, my husband didn't. And in the middle of the night, a couple days after we said goodbye to the truck, he said he had suddenly figured out the connection between the tire and the truck's disappearance. And what my husband remembered was the image of the underside of the truck after we got our poor truck back while he was cutting away the tailpipe that had been connected to the catalytic converter with certain pickup trucks. The spare is not in the trunk. It's underneath the bed of the truck. It's actually Ah. held underneath the bed of the truck. The spare tire is secured in place over the catalytic converter in these trucks, making it very difficult to get to the catalytic converter without first removing the spare tire, which you can't do without a special tool, unless you get someone to do it for you. Do you see where this is going? I do. (laughs) Our theory is that it was the thieves who let the air out of the tire a few days prior to taking the truck. Seeing the flat prompted us dutifully to put on the spare, which meant removing it from underneath the truck and making the catalytic converter accessible to a saw. When the thieves returned to steal the truck, we had made sawing off the catalytic converter a breeze for them, even more of a breeze than it would be. I
3: am impressed in some perverse way. Well, if this were the totality of the rare earth metal story, then fixing this problem might be simply a task for law enforcement. But a worldwide scarcity of rare elements is a possibly serious roadblock to dealing with
2: climate change. Coming up, can we develop rare earth metal alternatives for use in electric vehicles? This episode of Big Picture Science is Testing Your Metal.
0: So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to what's new with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's what's new with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.
3: The demand for rare earth metals for catalytic converters is not the only stress on the metal supply. We need certain metals to build all sorts of clean technologies for essential components of solar panels, for example, or the magnets that go into turbines or electric motors in general.
2: You might think that on the transportation front, at least, the problem goes away when we ditch our gas-powered cars for electric vehicles because they don't use catalytic converters. But they do use another rare earth metal called neodymium.
3: In a moment, we'll talk about the search for alternatives to rare earth metals. But first, we ask chemist Paul Danhauer, what properties of neodymium make using it to build magnets so attractive?
4: Right. So now we're talking about completely different properties. So again, this is another metal, but now we're looking at uh, magnetic properties. And of course, if you're working with motors, motors are an electrical process where you have to actually accelerate something using electrical power, using magnets and a rotary magnet system. And so a neodymium uh, magnet is actually not going to participate in the catalytic reaction. It's going to operate as a magnet, which is just like you use magnets on all over your house, like on your fridge, right? It's not participating in the catalytic reaction. That's very different than the metals we use inside of a catalytic converter, which are actively interacting with gases and conducting chemistry.
2: But it's a rare earth metal all the same.
4: That's right. I mean, there are many metals that we wish the earth had in a, a more available and abundant form. Of course, people are working on all sorts of solutions to solve the the shortages of those, including new ways to mine those materials and obtain those materials, but also to make materials that give you the same performance with a more abundant, cheap material.
2: Is there such a thing as unobtainium?
4: I I have not, I think that's from a comic book, isn't it? It's from Avatar. okay, okay. Yeah, I I am not aware of any element called unobtainium. (laughs) This is why we're here, unobtainium, because this little gray rock sells for 20 million a kilo. That's the only reason. It's what pays for the whole party. It's what pays for your science. Comprendo?
2: Why are all of these rare earth metals essential for many components of devices for renewable energy in particular? So rechargeable batteries, solar panels, magnets for turbines, electric motors, all of these things. So we need rare earth metals to develop clean energy. Why is that?
4: So things that we're describing here include things like magnets and catalysts and energy storage devices, And if these are designed electronic systems, they require specific properties. And again, if we go to the periodic table of elements, we have all the elements available and we can put those together in combinations. But if we're looking for specific performance, we have to go to the elements that give us that. They have to be very precise characteristics and only a couple of these metals give us those performance.
2: So do we need them for renewable energy devices in particular or do we need them for so many different things but now attention is being drawn to renewable energy technology and so we're paying attention to rare earth metals?
4: I think we're paying more attention to them now because of these new emerging applications for renewable energy. Uh, These key metals have been important for applications throughout the last century for all sorts of things that most people have just never heard of. Uh, But of course, with the climate crisis and our challenge of sustainability, we have all of these new problems. And for that, a lot of the solutions are high-tech and they are engineered devices which require these types of materials. And so that's what we're hearing about.
2: Paul Danhauer, thank you so much for joining us.
4: Thank you. It's great to be here.
2: Paul Danhauer is a professor of chemical
3: engineering and material science at the University of Minnesota. He's also a 2020 MacArthur Fellow. Well, every time you develop a new technology, you create new problems. And in this case, mining rare earth metals can be quite polluting due to the chemicals used. And the extraction required to get at them can destroy whole ecosystems. So we have a paradox. We need rare earth metals for clean energy, but extracting them is contributing to the environmental assault we're trying to prevent.
2: Here's another problem. As we heard, electric vehicles rely on a part of the motor that's about the size of a pack of cards called a permanent magnet. Neodymium magnets, also used in wind turbines, are the most common rare earth magnets and China supplies 90% of the world's neodymium.
3: So for geopolitical, practical, and environmental reasons, the rare earth metals that will drive 21st century clean technologies, such as electric vehicles, are hard to come by. And it's not only the rare earth metals that are in limited supply. For example, cobalt, which is not a rare earth metal, but it's used in lithium ion storage batteries. And uh, it's principally mined in Africa, and is also environmentally and politically perilous. But we're not stalled. Chemical engineers such as Chris Layton at the University of Minnesota are working on developing alternatives. But first, Chris, let's say more about what it is about neodymium, for example, that makes it better than good old iron as a magnet.
5: When we look at permanent magnets, right, magnets that are used heavily in technology, Um, There are really two aspects to how well they perform, And, and one of them is magnetization. right? How strong are the North Poles and the South Poles in a magnet? But another is if I line up the North Poles and the South Poles in a certain orientation, will they stay that way? Can the magnet demagnetize or can it rotate so those North and South Poles move? And that relates to a property called anisotropy, right? the fact that things look different in different directions. And so to bake the best magnets that we know how to make right now, we need both. And it's quite easy with iron, as you mentioned, to get high magnetization. But getting that strong anisotropy, we need heavy elements towards the bottom of the periodic table. And that's where the rare earths come in. We basically mix and match those to try and get those two properties.
3: Uh, You know, there was a comic book in the United States, you know, whoever controls magnetism, Controls the world. I mean, that was a nice thought. And I had a you know a shaped uh, kitty magnet back then. And I thought maybe I could at least control my neighborhood. Uh, you know, how does magnetization work? I mean, what makes something a magnet? Yeah,
5: it's it, it's a tricky question, right? Because magnetism has been around. People have been using it for a very very long time, right? Since trying to basically make a compass, right, to essentially navigate to today, where, again, magnets are very, very widely used in technology, but exactly how they work, how a material actually produces a magnetic field was not understood until you know something like 100 years ago, uh, even less than that. And it really does boil down to the motion of electrons inside the solid, right? So we have these these subatomic particles, electrons, the way that they're arranged in atoms and the way that they interact with one another can make some materials have this property of magnetism which means that outside of those materials they can generate a magnetic field
3: all right so it has to do with the electrons it's like all of chemistry right it's it's all about the electrons i i just as an aside i mentioned the fact that i had you know little u-shaped kitty magnets when i was a kid and they could pick up maybe a paper clip but in my in my garage i have some rare earth magnets i assume they're neodymium but they didn't tell me and it's hard to pull them apart. These things are much, much more powerful than the old uh, iron magnets.
5: They absolutely are. I mean, they're phenomenally strong.
3: Okay, so you're trying to find or develop some sort of uh, substitute for neodymium or some of these other rare earth uh, metals. Are you doing that because of the environmental cost of mining these things? I, I mean, I don't know whether they're you know, doomed to always be environmentally destructive. It, that's the way it's being done in China. Or is it just that fact, the fact that the market is largely controlled by China, that we have to have some independent supply of uh, magnets?
5: Yeah, I mean, this is, this is really where it gets complicated, right? And it, it, also, I should say, it brings in a lot of topics outside of science, right? But um, the, the problem more broadly, I would say, than just the rare earths, because it really is now a very broad problem, is that we have all of these critical elements and sensitive elements, meaning that um, it's not just abundance that is the problem. It's the fact that you already mentioned that even the materials that are relatively abundant, they're not very uniformly distributed around the globe, right? They tend to be in certain countries and those countries dictate all of the issues with supply chain and a lot of complexity comes in there. Um, And it's much more general than just rare earth magnets. Rare earths, first of all, are used in a lot of things outside of magnetism. And also... Particularly in the field of renewable energy, clean energy technologies, this isn't the end of it. I'm sure you spoke with Paul earlier about platinum and things like that um, in catalytic converters. That's not the only example, right? I mean, in solar cell materials, we have tellurium in this class. you know, we have indium in this class, also used in laptop displays and cell phone displays. and then you know an elephant in the room is lithium ion batteries where we have similar issues with lithium. Those also contain cobalt, where these kind of issues come up. So, so they're everywhere.
3: So you're working on finding, you know, some other compounds, not elements, but some other compounds, I think, that could replace the rare earths in these, in these magnets, which are, as you point out, in, in lots of things, cars is the, the number one item that comes to many people's minds, electric cars. Have you had any success?
5: Well, actually, you know, my my own research in uh, that impinges on this area of elements actually really comes to bear more in photovoltaics in solar cells, where we are really working on on trying to develop earth abundant, non toxic, um, low cost materials to make direct replacements for what are currently being used in second generation solar cells that are critical elements. Um, but there is a lot of research going on in the rare earth kind of displacement in magnetism kind of area. Um, And I can tell you a lot about what people are trying. I mean, we know so much right now in this day and age about magnetic technology. We've been using it in tremendously high-tech applications like hard disk drives. And so we've learned a lot about how to engineer those materials. And there's a, a whole host of ideas that people are pursuing that are completely rare earth free or that use the rare earths in smaller quantities or use better rare earths. Um, so there's a lot of different work in many different directions.
3: So, Chris, I mean, <laughs> making these substitutes for, if you will, rare earth metal magnets, for example. I mean, you could do that in the lab, apparently, and write a paper about it, and that'll get somebody's attention. But could you scale that up on, you know, to industrial quantities and uh, competitive prices?
5: Yeah, This is is a key question, but people really are paying a lot of attention to that, right? And And it's not what you want to do is to try and find a replacement for a specific element. Really what people are trying to find ways to do is make a completely different compound. And that compound might have properties that are comparable to the rare earth transition metal alloys, but it wouldn't contain the rare earth transition metal alloys, right? And so, you know, people are specifically picking things and are interested in things that they know that they can scale up. Of course,
3: any new compound that you either make in some way, you have to disturb the environment to get it. And that's, you know, that's, a, if you will, an environmental affront. But on the other hand, if you don't do that, you keep driving automobiles around. So, how do you, uh, gas powered automobiles, so how do you balance those two things? How do you see that?
5: Yeah, well, this is the million dollar question, right? I mean, this is the really, really tricky part that gets sort of at the heart of all of this. I think one, one big thing to mention is you know, the, the, the mantra that we're all learning in our own homes, reduce, reuse, recycle, it applies on an enormous scale to, to this problem too. It's, it's not just a question that we find something that's a little bit better to use that will have less environmental impact. We also have to think about ways that we can efficiently re- recycle it. Right? And we have to think about ways that we can reduce the consumption of uh, you know, the need for these materials in the first place. So I think there are, there are multiple aspects to this, but you really put your finger on the, the, the heart of this, is how do we balance this phenomenally difficult problem, which is that we just want more, right? We want to be able to do X, Y, Z. And I think we have to realize it does not come at no cost. It comes at significant cost. And the way that cost is distributed around the planet is, is not homogeneous at all. Um, and the consumers and the generators are not necessarily in, in the same locations in many cases. And that opens up you know, really, really tricky questions. The one thing that I think material science can do um, in many different ways that will impact many different areas is to, to think from the very beginning about what we make our materials from and the impact and the life cycle and so on, rather than do things in a mode where we discover a fantastic, exciting new property, which would be useful for a certain function, and then just dive right in.
3: Well, finally, Chris, I have to say, I've heard it said that the 20th century may have been the century of physics and astronomy, but the 21st century will be the province of either biology or materials or both. And it sounds like materials well, maybe we'll stop building everything with the same stuff that people were building them out of in the 19th century. Chris Layton, thanks so very much for being with us. Thank
5: you.
2: Chris Layton is a professor of chemical engineering and material science at the University of Minnesota. Seth, could you speak more generally to the idea that the supply of metals that we rely on for a whole host of technologies is dwindling, and why does that include both rare earth metals but also metals in in general.
3: Yeah, well, uh, there there are two reasons for this. To begin with, of course, it's just a limited amount of a lot of these things, and that goes back to the processes that power the stars, because all these metals were cooked up in stars. Uh, now, it turns out, for reasons that are best left to a nuclear physics class, uh, there's a lot of iron around, so we're not about to run out of iron or steel or anything like that. But a lot of other metals that are very commonplace, like copper or zinc, right, uh, or nickel, Uh, these are getting, you know, the, the, the good ores, if you will, the places where it pays to set up a mine are becoming fewer and fewer eventually. And within 10 or 20 years, you know, it's going to be tough to get enough copper to make all those pennies. Although maybe by then we won't be making many pennies.
2: As alternative compounds and large-scale recycling are being developed, the mining
6: industry is turning its eye toward the sea. There is just a generally accepted view that in order to mine metals from the ground, you need to do a lot of environmental damage. And there might be a way to really rethink the way that we harvest metals.
3: Coming up, the challenge mining companies face is they attempt to pivot to cleaner practices and whether the industry as a whole can balance profits with environmentalism. This episode of Big Picture Science is testing your metal. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released
4: nearly every day, The Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less, so you can easily hear about the latest
1: updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever
3: you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. We may be up against some elementary physics when it comes to creating substitute materials for rare earth metals, but what about finding new sources of relatively scarce metals?
2: Lying in abundance across the deep ocean floor, about two and a half to three miles down, like rocks scattered at the bottom of a river, are metal stone-like objects called nodules. They form when metals such as manganese, cobalt, and zinc slowly grow around some sort of hard core Oceanographer Steve Haddock says these polymetallic nodules may be as old as 14 million years.
1: They're precipitating the dissolved chemicals out of the ocean itself onto a little nucleation site. So in other words, I don't know if people have played with those salt crystals. Grow your own salt crystals at home where you have a little string hanging down. And then just slowly, 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 literally, you know, molecule by molecule, those layers built up.
3: These potato-sized nodules contain not rare earth metals, but other metals essential for a host of renewable energy technologies, you know, for batteries for wind and solar farms and electric vehicles. And these are in short supply in terrestrial mines. By some estimates, there are 500 billion tons of polymetallic nodules scattered on the seafloor, and that's attracted the attention of deep-sea mining companies.
2: Now, underwater mining regulations have not been firmly established, but deep-sea mining is coming. More than a dozen international companies are poised with their dredging vehicles, waiting for the green light to scrape up those nodules from the sea floor. And as you can imagine, ocean mining is very controversial. Listeners may have heard our recent interview with Dr. Haddock when he shared his concerns.
1: I would encourage people to look up some pictures of some of these mining machines that have, have been built They look like a rototiller strapped to the front of a bulldozer. These can go along the seafloor and just scrape this swath of the surface sediments into their hoppers and then pump that material up to the surface. They run it through like a blender on the ship, the processing ship, so it turns into not even a puree. I mean, it's finer than a puree. And so that releases all the toxic chemicals that are potentially in there and turns what would be a mud clod into silty, muddy water.
2: There is much that we don't know about the deep sea. Most of the seafloor is unmapped, and its potential biodiversity remains undiscovered.
1: There's a couple things that are really acutely at risk. One is just the, the chance and the real possibility of losing permanently organisms that we haven't even discovered yet. You know, there's a, a great deal that we don't know about the deep sea, and especially about the biology of the deep ocean, it also could potentially affect the entire health of the ocean, pumping this um, silt into the water column permanently, and it's not going to be constrained to that little box. It's going to circulate all the way around the oceans.
3: One deep sea mining company called Impossible Mining, based here in the Silicon Valley, has proposed an alternative to using ocean bottom dredgers to harvest polymetallic nodules. A co founder of the company, Renee Grogan, serves as its environmental steward and she says her experiences working in terrestrial mines in Australia informed her new approach to ocean mining.
6: 15 years in the mining industry for me was the the genesis of an, an idea that this industry could do it better. It, it is a really old industry. It hasn't changed a lot in the last hundred years from a technological perspective, and sustainability and environmental management has always sort of been an afterthought Um, that's changing to some extent now but there is just a generally accepted view that in order to mine metals from the ground you need to do a lot of environmental damage and that's the real genesis of impossible mining that there might be a way to really rethink the way that we harvest metals and to try and do it in a more sustainable and environmentally responsible way.
2: We learned about her company from a member of the Impossible Mining Board who is, we should say, also on the board of the SETI Institute. But the company's scheme intrigued us, its use of robots to select nodules one by one, and of bacteria to extract the metal from the nodules. Still,
3: we wondered whether seabed mining can really be done without doing serious harm. Renee Grogan joined us from her home in Australia.
6: So what we're looking at doing is accessing the same resource, so those polymetallic nodules, the potato-shaped rocks, but developing robotic equipment that hovers above the seafloor and does not touch the seafloor and picks up the the nodules one at a time, basically, with robotic arms. Uh, And so the sediment um, that the nodules sit on would not be disturbed and everything that lives in the sediment would remain intact. And then the other really great thing that excites me is that we would use Um, artificial intelligence and computer vision to assist the robots to identify life. So these nodules are quite often home to um, deep sea ecosystems or or, um, organisms that are very sensitive. They don't like a lot of disturbance. Um, And so our robotics would identify if a nodule has some fauna growing on it, like a deep sea coral or a sponge, and it would leave that nodule alone. It would be instructed not to pick up that nodule.
3: What metals are in those nodules?
6: So they're polymetallic, which means that they have three or four or five metals in one, which is quite unusual for a mining ore body. Uh, Usually when you have a mine, it's just a copper mine or just a gold mine. These ones have uh, copper, uh, cobalt, manganese, and iron. And those four um, obviously are, are quite critical to the battery supply chain.
3: These nodules, I mean, I can picture a robot just hovering, you know, six inches or a foot above the bottom of the sea with its cameras, deciding, okay, uh, I, I want that nodule over there. And it sends out a robotic arm and picks it up off the seafloor. But that sounds, you know, kind of
6: slow. I mean, can you make that pay off in any way? It becomes, uh, obviously, you, you know, if you have one robot picking one nodule at a time, that's a very slow process. We're looking at developing robotics that would have multiple arms, so they're, you know, they're working on eight or ten arms at a time, picking up each, you know, picking up eight or ten nodules at a time. But then, obviously, we would scale that up. So you're looking at a fleet of robots. So it's sort of like a drone type um, operation where you can deploy numerous robots at a time. They're working in a fleet and they're harvesting the nodules in parallel and sending them up to the vessel.
3: Sounds like harvesting strawberries here in California. You have it a- <laughs> is
6: very similar. It's very similar technology, yes. Really? And we're also developing technology that will allow us to extract the metal from the rocks uh, using bacteria, which is another hugely exciting um, innovation in mining so that we would be able to avoid a lot of the chemical use. Um, that happens in, in normal processing of minerals. I don't understand how that works. What do the bacteria do? So these are bacteria that were discovered by our, another co-founder, Professor Ken Nielsen, and they use metals as electron receptors. So they basically use metals as an oxygen replacement. So they're breathing the metal. They don't, they don't eat it, they respire it. So if you add them to the crushed rock, Um, and give them a food source, which is organic carbon, then they will, over a period of about 24 hours, breathe their way through the rock and liberate the metals into a solution, which can then be crystallised using sort of traditional techniques. So that would replace things like leaching with acid or roasting or using cyanide. Um, Which all traditional methodologies for processing minerals and to mine the seafloor is is a scary thing. It's a challenging thing, and certainly it should be approached with caution. But if we can if we can identify a way to harvest these nodules and protect the ecosystem that relies on the nodules, um, and that obviously so. The last thing I wanted to mention is that that involves leaving a percentage of them behind, right? Because Um, organisms rely on these nodules. They're the only hard substrate on the seafloor. So things like corals need to attach themselves to the nodules, which means you need to leave some of them behind so that the ecosystem that relies on them is, is remaining intact. And one of the great questions is, well, how many is enough? You know, if, if we do we leave five percent, do we leave ten percent? Does that change in different microhabitats? And that's a really important question and it's one that hasn't really been studied yet because the dredging technology doesn't allow you to leave nodules behind. And so it's not really a question that anyone has turned their attention to. So that's certainly going to be a focus for us.
3: Well, finally, Renee, can you give me some idea of the scale of the problem, Renee? I mean to supply the market or the envisioned market say 10 years down the road from where we are now how much ocean floor would you have to pick uh, to supply that 10 uh, percent of the required metals or some significant fraction
6: yeah it's a it is a very challenging um, question of scale and there are it, it's not as simple as sort of saying this is how big the area you need to to impact is i think there there are different densities of these nodules on the sea floor in different parts of the ocean so obviously the the denser the deposit the better from a commercial perspective certainly but secondly you know there are this is a really complex issue what we need is is to supply the demand in the short term and by short term i mean about 10 years um, because this is the time when you are you needing to inject the metals into the supply chain to create these these vehicles and these batteries Um, At the same time, encouraging the recycling industry to really keep up and and to get us to a point where perhaps we would not actually need the mining anymore. And we would get to a point in 15 maybe years where there is enough of this battery metal in circulation, 20 years maybe, um, that you could say, okay, where now the recycling industry has the capacity to, to meet the continual demand.
3: Well, Renee Grogan, thanks so very much for speaking with us.
6: It's my, my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Seth. Renee Grogan
2: is the co-founder of the mining company Impossible Mining. She serves as its environmental consultant. Well, Seth, we've come to that time where we look at the big picture. In this case, the big picture of the increasing demand for rare earth metals and other metals.
3: Yeah. Well, you know, on the one hand, I have to admire the ingenuity of humanity, that we've come to a point where elements that I could barely pronounce are now critical to our existence. But uh, it's certainly presenting a
2: challenge. You mean elements other than oxygen and carbon, because I think you can pronounce those.
3: Yeah. (laughs) Well, with long practice, but I mean, neodymium, promethium, samarium, europium, gadolinium, And yttrium, I mean, you know, a lot lot of these things are named after uh, nondescript towns in Sweden. No offense to any Swedish listeners.
2: Well, one of the questions is whether we can mine these metals and these rare earth metals. And some companies are turning to the ocean. We heard a plan for responsible mining from the ocean bottom we will see if that company is able to do that because, of course, the best laid plans, even when they're laid in water, may not unfold that way.
3: Well, I mean, that's why you have to try. But, you know, if the incentive is there to try, and I think investors these days are pretty savvy about companies that are environmentally responsible and those that aren't. So, uh, you know, I, I just hope this works.
2: Well, one of the things I learned in this episode is the role that these rare earth metals play in everyday activities and certainly <laughs> the role that they play in cars as i said i learned that the hard way they aren't exactly rare they are these metals are in many devices that we use every day
3: yeah absolutely well look how many of your friends had ever heard of germanium? until the invention of the transistor, although I don't know how many friends you had back when the transistor was invented. But Germanian suddenly became something of value, something of interest. And before that, it was just, you know, on a chart in your chemistry classroom.
2: Your Germanian comment is relevant, Seth. I will give you that. You know, the big question uh, that comes to the fore that Chris Layton stated was, how do we balance the fact that we want more stuff with the fact that it doesn't come at no cost. In fact, it may come at significant cost.
3: But then you can always resort to what was described to us as the bigger, bigger picture. And that is, in the short term, you develop responsible mining. In the somewhat less immediate future, you recycle everything or you seek new sources, either whether it's you know tearing apart your local asteroid or you do what Chris Layton was alluding to, where you make something that functions the same as these metals, but is made out of stuff that isn't even metallic, you know, just very common sorts of things. And I think that that's such an interesting idea because it will inevitably lead to other kinds of chemical magic that will be helpful in our fight to you know, stay on earth for more than just one more generation.
2: So the questions regarding rare earth metals and other metals are elemental, but they aren't elementary. This show is made possible thanks to the rare abilities of senior producer Gary Niederhoff. Thanks also to the help from Brian Edwards and Shannon Rose Geary. I am executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley.
3: Thanks also to financial support from Reno Scholsky David, and Sammy David, and to NASA. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization whose scientists study, among other things, the abundances of metals in the bodies of our solar system. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also a big thanks to our listeners and to our Patreon supporters.
2: Original music by Dewey DeLay and June Miyaki. This episode of Big Picture Science, exploring the role that rare earth metals play in our everyday tasks and in the future of clean energy is called Testing Your Metal.